We are in 1 Samuel 26 and 27 today. We're moving through this book in fairly good clip. See, it's a uh, narrative, it's the stories and accounts, you should say, and uh, so it doesn't always require verse by verse to go through some of these <clears throat> texts. But uh, we're gonna. I want to say a few things about uh, David and Abigail. But let's stand and we'll read uh, the first part of chapter twenty-six. To give us a little idea of what's going on here. <clears throat> we'll read down verse fourteen verses or so. We're saying the twenty-six. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill at Echeliah, which is in the east of Jishimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Echeliah, or Hikela, which is beside the road on the east of Jishimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him in the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. And then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite, to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, and I believe, he correct me if I'm wrong, I believe Zeruiah was one of David's sisters, so that Joab and um, Abishai, and there would be a third uh, brother, are his cousins anyway. And uh, they're very close, they're kind of like in his inner circle. Uh, who will go down with me into the camp of Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to, to the army by night, and there Saul they saw sleeping with the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner, the army, and the army lay around him. Then said Abishai to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Please let me send him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. In other words, I will not have to strike him twice. But Saul said to Abishai, Do not destroy him who can, for who can put his hand out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless. David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down in the battle of Paris. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but now take the spear that is at his head and the jar of water, and let's go. So David took the spear and the jar of water to David's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any wake, for they all were asleep. That the deep sleep of the Lord fallen upon this. So, uh, a little interesting account here of uh, how the Lord, uh, just some of the play between uh, Saul and David. <clears throat> of course, what will happen is that David will get away from the army and then he'll wake everybody up, call out to them, and as we'll see here, he'll kind of make fun of Abner, who is kind of like his commander of his army. In, in a sense, of the whole army for not taking care of Saul, that they should be put to death because they allowed the enemies of Saul to come right up and could have easily killed him. And then again, start, I think it puts a guilt trip in a good sense to get on Saul. 
uh, I could have killed you and didn't. And I think this is really the last time. I think Saul at this point, of course, Saul's about to die pretty soon anyway, so it isn't really much better. But he, this is the last time it seems like Saul really goes after David. Uh, and the Lord takes care of uh, him. Uh, kind of David prophesied there, which is red. Anyway, last week we dealt with uh, David and Abigail. And I just wanted to uh, point out a couple of the things before we moved on. Let me, uh, first of all, review. We saw Nabal, the fool, teach of spiritual fools who care about this life only and ignore the Lord and eternity. Nabal clearly was one who only cared about himself. And then Abigail, his wife, who was seen as one who was wise, she approached life considered on the kingdom of God. She understands what's important. And, uh, so she responds to David's needs, whereas Nabal doesn't. She's not passive, but as she hears of David's plot to kill all the males of the ranch, she does what she can for the Lord and accepts his providence. She doesn't just sit there. She doesn't use the sovereignty of God, but it says an excuse that there's nothing. And she just shows someone who exercises wisdom. She is wise, and she exercises that wisdom. So it's a good example there for us. Do not remain Silent. Don't don't stay in the background. Don't say, "Well, I don't I don't do good in front of people. I don't I'm not a good speaker." You know, whatever all the excuses we use, do not engage in the church. Do not to engage with people. Uh, the Lord didn't save us to just sit in our corner and do nothing. And that sometimes takes great faith and, and great effort. Uh, but you know, let, let, don't don't have to look back. At the end of your life, of regrets that I I didn't really do anything for the Lord. David shows us how inconsistent though we can be by treating circumstances differently, and here we just get another example of this before and after the chapter, where David is very reluctant to raise up his hand against Saul, but at the drop of a hat, because of insults, he's ready to kill uh, very many people. Uh, so, uh, we talked about how some are serving the Lord, you know, some circumstances they serve the Lord well, then they turn right around and uh, completely fail. And we all can identify with that, right? And we understand that, but uh, that is uh, how it goes. But again, those are examples that we see. Our duty is to, you know, look at ourselves. Am I like that? Am I inconsistent? Does do I, uh, you know, and then I think men is a good example at home. But not that women can't do this as well. But, you know, just do, do our family comes home when our wife greets us, you know, when we come home, does she not know what she's going to face? Who? Is she going to be the calm, loving husband? Or the I, you know, I'm upset about something, I'm going to take it out on her husband, you know? So we don't want to be like that. So I think you hear it again, we see the harm that can be done when we can't control ourselves. Well, just a couple other things here then. Um, we have this unnamed player who comes, uh, a servant who comes to Abigail to let her know uh, what's going on. So it just reminds us that uh, we all have a part to play and uh, had this person not said this, great harm would have taken place. I, I made me think of uh, Naaman, the Count of Naaman, the leper, remember his servant girl, who was a slave that they had captured in battle from Israel. So she had no real reason to 
care what happened to Naaman, but she convinces Naaman to go and bathe in the Jordan River as Elisha told him to do. And she says, what harm can, can have, you know, can't hurt, right? And she saves his life. And uh, so, again, there's just no, none of us, no matter how, what part we play, how insignificant our roles in life might be or whatever, our gifts are, there's always something to do, a good word here, a word of encouragement or instruction. You never know what the Lord might do with it. Well, we read here that Abigail becomes David's wife. Um, in verse 36 of chapter uh, 25, you see, of course, Nabal, as he hears what had happened, he basically has a stroke of some sort and dies. Uh, soon afterwards, um, and, and what I thought about that was that here uh, he is not given an opportunity to repent. You know, there are those who think, "Well, I'll get right with the Lord once you know I'm done doing everything I want to do and all that." And no one has that. Um, you know, well, obviously, that, that's not the spirit working in someone's life. So that's not going to ever really work out well as a rule, because the, God doesn't uh, save people in that fashion. He doesn't. You don't get saved because, well, I've done everything else. Now I'm going to just, uh, you know, try God or, or get right. And so that just doesn't work. And, of course, here, you don't know when you're going to die to start with. So putting anything off another second is very dangerous, certainly when it comes to our salvation. But, um, you know, but it, it, that's why he's called fool, right? Um, one more thing here, though. Of course, uh, just, well, David... It also says that he gets uh, not only Abigail, but um, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and she marries her. And I thought it was interesting, we really hear very little about Ahinoam, you know, other than that she's from Jezreel, uh, not much is said of her, and, and yet much is said of Abigail, at least she's given a chapter, and we, we know a lot about her character. And I thought, well, why? You know, that's what an example that so many, you know, here's a woman who perhaps was a good wife to David, and maybe every bit, bit as a good, faithful wife as Abigail was. Both of them in a difficult situations. So obviously, David had several wives before it's all over with. But we know this that no matter what her background is, her situation is, and that she's just merely named. And that's pretty much it. We know that now she's enjoying the glories of her Savior, assuming that she was a believer, just as much as Abigail and David, that even though she had a smaller part to play, it doesn't matter. And so I always, sometimes I think about that when I see some of the mentions along with Abigail, and it's like, she doesn't get much filling, but it's okay. The Lord will make it right. And so I always find that encouraging a little bit when I think about that. Well, one more thing here. Um, with Abigail, I think we see a picture of um, something, uh, I like to call it eschatological about Abigail that is looking forward to the future. Think about it. She's yoked in a covenant with one who is not good for her. Which of course is And she's apparently childish because being yoked to Something that is not good, that does not produce fruit, right? 
Then tidings come that judgment is coming, and she seeks out David as her savior. She takes her place in the dust before him. She confesses her iniquity. She seeks forgiveness. And after David has victory over his enemies, in other words, after Nabal, the one that she was uh, uh, hooked up with, you might say, uh, as Paul refers to this in Romans 7, remember, he was married to the law, but once the law was, he used the example that when a wife is married to a husband, uh, and, and the husband dies, you're free. She's free, right? And so, the, the once Christ died and, and, and kept the law for us, we're freed from the condemnation of the law, and we now are married to Christ, right? And so here, once Nabal dies, her savior David brings her into his kingdom, but also into his family, right? She's married to him, to her. And uh, so, just, I thought it was a neat example of uh, our relationship with Jesus Christ and what happened to us. So, I hope that everyone here today um, has, at some point, found themselves in Abigail's place, that she realized, or you realized, that David, or Jesus, of course, is your only Savior. So, anyway, I thought it was a little eschatological thing there to figure out. All right. Chapter 26 in this account with David and Saul. So here's another instance where David is going to wait on the Lord. Uh, and he also tries to make his, the peace with Saul. Um, David has shown us patience and trusting God to remove his enemies and to give him victory without him having to do things. As he tells Abishai that, that the Lord will, Saul will, will be taken care of one way or another. And so waiting on the Lord, when the course is unclear, which for David it is, because David really didn't know how all this was going to work out, but he's waiting on the Lord, is certainly a better situation than kind of rushing in and doing something that you're really not sure of, right? And so, stepping out in faith, sometimes we, we call this stepping out in faith, and it's come to mean different things. Many times, it is a response to wanting something with no real assurance from the Lord that he wants it to be. And I, I remember this happening, um, and probably if you've been in the church most of your life, you've seen it at one point or another. I remember a church I was in as a, as a, as a teenager where uh, the church, the building had burned down, and so they had come up with this great big plan where they were going to have multiple buildings, and they had, there was this tool, so they had a tool, so there was part of that gymnasium and all this. You know, in fact, this would be back in the early 70s, so it would have, it was you know, over a million dollars back then, so it was a big thing. And of course, it was going to require finagling a lot of finances, fundraisers, the whole kind of, all that kind of stuff. But it was, it's, it's presented as we're stepping out in faith. Well, you're definitely doing something. The issue is, is this something that we have decided we want? And so we're going to do it, and we're going to trust the Lord to take care of it. And I'm not saying that's always wrong, but the problem is it's clear that many times this has taken place, and it's really, I've got my agenda, so I'm going to do it, and I'm just going to hope the Lord is going to jump on my bandwagon and take care of me, pick up the pieces, you might say. And I don't think that that should be called stepping out in faith. Again, maybe it's something that you feel like you need to do, but 
uh, you got to be careful here because once you say we're stepping out of faith, we're more or less saying that we're this is good, this is faith, and, and, and you're kind of putting God on the spot, right? Because if if you're if, if he doesn't come through, then what happened, right? Because if that, well, our opposite wasn't faith, and a lot of people don't want to uh, admit that after the fact. So, in other words, we might buy something that we don't have the money for. And we're going to trust God to supply the need. Well, again, sometimes we do have to kind of purchase things or, you know, our debt or whatever we don't have the money for. But when we do it because it's something we want, and certainly the Bible isn't to tell us that we had to buy this or that. I would just say be careful of saying that we're stepping out of faith because faith is obeying the word of God, is believing what God says and living accordingly. And there's a difference there. One might quit his job because, well, I really don't like my job, and so I'm just going to trust God to take care of it. But to me, that's kind of foolish. Especially if you've got a family. You know, just, well, I'm going to quit my job. Um, I don't, I would say probably that's not stepping out of the faith. That is kind of acting rationally instead of looking for another job in, in the meantime. Because what's that faith based on? What's based on Something I wanted or something I didn't want instead of what the Lord would have for me to do. So, again, I'm not saying that every situation uh, is right or wrong in this case, but be careful of thinking that uh, the Lord has to bless whatever you're doing. So, on the other hand, when one knows what the Bible tells him to do, in other words, there's certain things that are right for me to do, certain things that are wrong for me to do, and for me to live according to the word of God, I will lose my job, and so I do what I know is right, and I lose my job. Now I have stepped on out in faith. That there, there's no question there because in obedience to God, this thing has happened to me. So I have trusted God rather than man, and I will accept the circumstances. So. In, in obeying the Lord, it creates a real trial for me, and I obey anyway, then we can firmly say we are stepping out of faith. Because faith is always coupled with obedience in the Word, not presumption. Not the way to get my will done. That That's not faith. That's something else. Put it like that. So I think David's action here shows that the Lord blesses those who are willing to obey and wait on him rather than doing whatever we want and trust God to pick up put the pieces. And David doesn't just kill Saul because, well, you know, I'm going to be king anyway. He's willing to, to say, I'm going to let the Lord work this thing out. So David um, would have been king anyway, but what would be the cost? We've kind of already dealt with those things about killing Saul. What would that have meant? And so it was going to take years for all of Israel to accept him as king anyway. And did not David just learn of Nabal? The Lord is going to strike down his enemies. You just do what's right and let the Lord take care of the peripheral, right? And instead of us, you know, rushing in and doing things that we have no real confidence in. So anyway, I think that's at least something to consider. And we've seen this all along. It's not like this is the only place we've seen this and maybe even talk about it, but it's, it's to me important uh, because it's, it's not uncommon at all for people to kind of blame the Lord or to call faith.
their actions, trying to justify what they've done, when they really don't know whether that was right or not. Certainly, the Bible didn't say it was, and that they are assuming Anyway, in uh, so we, we were kind of read up to the part where uh, they leave, they take Saul's uh, spear and they take off, and then they start. We didn't read where he starts to call back to them here in chapter twenty-six, but notice what he says here in verses fourteen and fifteen as he gets to the top of the tail and starts to call. And he says, "David called the army and to Abner the son of Ner and said, Will you not answer, Abner?'" Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? And I think here he's kind of, it's tongue-in-cheek. In other words, he's saying, are, are you a man or not because of what you've done here? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your king, your lord's king? But when the people came in to destroy the king, your lord. And so... You see here that while David takes precautions to save his life, he is not going to be browbeaten into a whip. For David has been on the run by and large, but David is not a coward by any stretch. He's cautious, but he's willing to stand and to do what is right when, uh, and certainly to proclaim the truth. And, he's, and that's one thing David has done throughout this whole uh, scenario with Saul. He's been very consistent to... to Tell Saul the truth, to, to defend himself, to bring the Lord into the situation as he does here. So if we fear men to the point we're not obeying the Lord, then we'd have to say that we're fear man more than God. But here he points out that he has protected Saul better than his bodyguard. And actually, they say that the, the word you in this area right here are all plural. So he's really not just talking to Abner, but of course to the army as well. And remind, one thing we might say it reminds us of is that the Christian is a better friend even to their enemies and their supposed friends because we will speak the truth. We will do what's right. Whereas someone's friends, uh, who don't love the Lord are not going to do anything that's going to be helpful to them, uh, spiritually. And so in this case, the message is clear that Saul has 3,000 bodyguards and still not as safe as David is, who was able to walk right into the midst of his enemies and do whatever he wanted to do, right? Saul is defenseless without the Lord. So that's just, I mean, and it's an old uh, lesson, it's one we know, but one that we sometimes forget, especially when we're out, out of our element, out away from the church, among people, maybe who are lost, or people that we don't, maybe are necessarily our friends. We're at safer than they are. We're safer walking in the, uh, in, in the streets of Pittsburgh at night, in one sense, than, than in broad daylight, because the Lord, is, is it, in fact, there's a place in the Bible where night and light and darkness is the same to the Lord. I think it's in Psalm 139. <clears throat> and so, uh, you know, it's just something to think about and remember. And then verses 18 through 20, David makes an interesting uh, observation here. Saul, in verse 17, Saul recognizes David's voice. Is this your voice, my son David? And David says, It is the voice of my Lord, O King. It is my voice, my Lord, O King. And he said, Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? 
what evil is on my head, because he said this more than once, and Jonathan his son said this also. Now therefore let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offer. <coughs> but if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, No serve other gods. Now therefore let not my blood fall from the earth away from the presence of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. So again, there's a couple of points here that David makes. <clears throat> you know, that if it's the Lord who has, is in this, then he's got no recourse but to, to ask the Lord to have mercy on him. And that's all well and good. But if, he says, if other people have stirred up your heart against me, then may the Lord uh, deal with them because, uh, <clears throat> because that's, that, that's not a good reason. But notice here what really seems to bother David. I mean, obviously he doesn't like being hunted and having to run for his life. But what does he say here that is the reason why he's really upset about all this? And it's because he's not been allowed to participate in the covenant blessings of being a Jew. He's, he's not been able to be make sacrifices, to be at the tabernacle, you know, and, and to, to enjoy what it is to be a covenant person. He's been, he's been, a lot of times, he's got to live in foreign lands. We'll see this in the next chapter. He, he lives down in, uh, in the Philistia. And so it wasn't so much personal attacks and the uncomfortable, uncomfortable conditions, but not enjoying the presence of God at the tabernacle. And I think that's a interesting, if not important, thing to think about. Later in the Psalms, we'll learn that David loved to be with God's people, that to be at the house of God. Psalm 27, 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in the temple. So, I mean, think about what he's saying. Now, obviously, David had asked for many things. He does so in the Psalms, and, you know, if any person would ask God for Needs right in his life, but the thing that was foremost in his mind was that he would be, would be able to enjoy the Lord, right? That's kind of what he's saying here to to be able to understand God. Psalm one hundred four: Enter his gates of thanksgiving and his courts of praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Psalm one twenty two one. David says, "I was glad when they said to me." So David's not just whistling Dixie here. This is something that David missed. He was upset. What upset him most was that he was not able to enjoy uh, the privileges of knowing God uh, in a covenant relationship with him uh, as he should be able to. And I can't help but, you know, so you start thinking about, well, what upsets me the most uh, in life? Maybe the things that are taken away from me. Is it just when I'm separated from friends and comforts and activities and my, my favorite TV shows or whatever, you know, that I can't watch? Um, or am I most bothered when I don't have my relationship with the Lord as it should be? When I see coldness in my uh, heart, when I see coldness in the church, or I'm not 
uh, don't seem to uh, enjoy the things of God like they should? You know, or, or is it just a creature comfort because I'm in pain or I, I don't have the money I want or whatever, you know? And, and I think that's something that we, again, have to know that we probably don't always do well at. But I, I just thought, you know, again, it shows us David's character with all his faults. David is a man after the heart of God. He loved the Lord. That's, I think, is one example of right here. So he, he, he kind of says, Saul, you know, if someone has put you up to this, if they lied about me or whatever, that needs to be taken care of. But I think David really doesn't mention the third alternative, which was likely the true one, that the reason Saul is running after David is because in his own heart he has turned himself up. He, he's full of jealousy and pride. So I don't think anybody had to talk to Saul and calling after David or whatever. And the Lord obviously didn't do it. Saul's doing it. His own evil heart that's causing him to follow after David. And so perhaps there, someone said that's a tax on David's heart. David has, didn't just say Saul, you know, you, you're you're doing this for your own simple reasons. He doesn't say that. He kind of makes the possibility that it's somebody else's fault that Saul's following after him. So he's not stirring up Saul. And it seems to have a good uh, um effect upon Saul as he you know as he answers all this in verse 21 Saul says I have sinned return my son David for I will do no more harm because my life was precious in your eyes this day now David heard that before right but I think perhaps here Saul means it but of course we really won't ever know because again Saul doesn't live much longer here and then notice how David responds to this invitation to Kind of, you'll lay down your arms and come out, and I won't hurt you. David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of your young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I will, would not put my hand out against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord and that he delivered me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. So, basically, <laughs> Saul says, Yeah, everything's okay. Come on here. David says, I'm going to pass. I think David uh, knows that he couldn't really trust Saul, and so he doesn't... Uh, Shows a little wisdom there, but uh, I think we saw this. Uh, yeah, in the last time when they were confronting each other, remember Saul says, "Promise me that you will not hurt my family." When Saul knew that David would be king someday, and and David promises him, but David doesn't ask Saul to promise to uh, protect him or his family because I don't think David trusted Saul. Saul had. There's no reason for him to do so. So I think we see this here. Um, so his confidence is in the Lord, uh, not what he, uh, not what Saul thinks about him, but what the Lord thinks about him. And uh, just another example, I think, of David's uh, uh, character here. Now, one thing we need to be careful of in studying the Old Testament, and this, this, this applies all through it, 
is um, that although God blesses David in his actions, uh, and here David does something that, humanly speaking, was kind of foolish, right? To to walk down in the midst of an army and, and do all that. And evidently they communicated each other, so whispering to each other. But obviously the Lord was in it. The Lord put them into a deep sleep. Otherwise that would not have worked out well. And yet, so the Lord takes care of David. And we're going to see this in the next chapter. I don't know if we get to it today. Uh, David does some things that aren't smart. And the Lord has been taking care of him every step of the way, right? As we read the Old Testament, though, we've got to be careful that we don't read that and say, okay, the Lord did that for David, therefore he's going to protect me and I'm, I can expect the same level of protection physically, right? And that's where I think a lot of people go off the rails in studying the Old Testament. I think that's why a lot of people don't even really preach out of the Old Testament because they, they just can't grasp that there, this is a picture of this is physical people giving us a physical picture of spiritual reality that is the church. And when you, when you equate the Jewish nation and the church as the same, and so the laws and the blessings and the cursings are all really the same, you really you make a big muddy mess out of all things. That's why I think some people struggle with that. What we see here, though, if we see great examples with David, and we see how the Lord protects David. And so that gives us confidence that the Lord will protect us and give us whatever we need. But we have to understand that we live in a different day in a different covenant. Many have been martyred while doing what is right. By being every bit as bold as David in proclaiming the truth. And not to do it even in a way that David would, in a sense, did something foolish when he marched in there like that, they have been as wise and as cautious as they know, and the Lord has not protected them physically, and they've been martyred, right? But David, and the reason why this, you know, you have to understand the difference here, is David is the future king of God's covenant people, and the whole nation, David, all that was all part of God bringing in the redemption of mankind through a his son, who was not yet born yet, that Jesus would come through. So he was going to be protected physically because there was things he yet had to do. But that's not the case with us. You know, besides, we're not waiting for the Lord to do anything in the future other than come back and make all things right. So we have to be careful to make the proper spiritual application as a spiritual people, because our battle is not with flesh and blood, it's if we proclaim the gospel to live Christ out in our lives and let God do what he will do. And he has told us, unlike Israel, who were promised even on earth that they would just obey, we're told that when we live godly in Christ Jesus, we will suffer persecution, right? That's one of the differences between the old covenant and the new covenant. So, you know, I think that, I hope that makes uh, a, a, some measure of sense. Don't expect the same outcome as we read here with David. And so we're much better off listening to the assurances found in God's word 
rather than constantly looking for little signs from the Lord that are sub subjective and easily misread, which again, when you read the Old Testament thinking that we're in the same situation, and you see all these signs that, that God did for David and, and others, you think we've got to have that. And that just leads to confusion and I think depression and problems. I was reading about a, a woman, this was I think way back in the day in England or something where this one pastor went to a woman, well, John Flavel, who was a well-known preacher and author, and uh, she was she was struggling with assurance. She just did not. She had a hard time believing that she was saying that, that God really loved her, that her sins were forgiven, and all this kind of stuff. And you know, the, the pastor's there is trying to uh, give her words of wisdom to help her, and she picks up a bottle and. Uh, she says, "Look, uh, I, I'm as likely to, I'm as likely, I'm, I'm as likely to be damned as this bottle is to break." And she throws it on the stone floor, and everybody's surprised it didn't break. Well, I think there's, you know, you can't already, you gotta, you know, it should have made her say, "Well, I need to think about this." But I, I wouldn't be surprised if. That sign that God gave her really didn't help her because she, her problem was not the, interpreting the sign. Her problem was she wasn't listening to what God said in His Word. She wasn't grasping hold by faith in Christ's finished work, right? So whether that bottle broke or not, I don't know if that really ever helped her. We'll get to maybe find out what the Lord's going to say. Now I thought it was kind of interesting how easy it is for us to want more than what the Bible gives, as if we need more than what the Bible, the revelation of God gives us. All right, well, we got five more minutes here. Let's just, 27 is pretty short, and uh, here, uh, we, and really, the, the, the main verse in 27 is verse 1, because we, we see David doing well and not doing well. So David said in his heart, that again, right after Great evidence of God's blessing upon his life, and Saul saying, "David, I'll think everything's forgotten, everything's good." He says in his heart, and the word that the commentators say in can be translated to, and, and, and I think in essence that's really what you have to understand. David said to himself, "This is David's problem here is that he's not listening to what God has to say. He's just he's just thinking, you know." Talking to himself, right? Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. And he just got through saying the exact opposite, right? He knew, he told Abishai, Saul's going to die, the Lord's going to take care of him. I'm going to be king someday. He knew that. <laughs> so what? But it's the next day, it's, it's a month later, it's six months later. And again, we've said this so many times with David now. Consistency is not always easy, right? I'm going to die by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better than for me that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Well, is that really the only option he's got? Especially since Saul has just told him, I'm not going to chase you anymore. His only option is I'm, we're going to, we've got to go all, bring all of our families down here and live in the midst of our enemies and the Lord's enemies. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the border of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. 
which is true, once Saul heard that he was living down there in Philistine, Saul didn't bother chasing him anymore because he knew that wasn't worth it. But Saul had uh, other problems anyway because the Philistines uh, themselves. And so David moved down there. So while the Bible doesn't spell out whether this was God was pleased or not, to me, verse 1 just reminds us that David now is in a situation he really doesn't have to be. But he is, and yet and the Lord's going to take care of him. But then another thing that goes on here is that, of course, Akish is the, the leader of the Philistines that David knows. Akish likes David, you know, his, his generals don't trust David. They're clearly, I think, wiser than Akish. Akish seems to be a little gullible. But uh, he gives him the city of Ziglag for David and his Probably, you're talking about well over a thousand people, because you have 600 warriors, their families, and so forth. So he gives them Ziklag to live in. And, uh, so then, so then David says, okay, now what am I going to do? So he goes on these raiding parties, and he goes, uh, you know, to all the cities that were Canaanite cities, enemies of Israel, and he uh, raids them, and he kills every last person so there could not be any witnesses left. To go back to a fish and tell him, oh, David's you know, killing your friends and your people. Because he's not leaving anybody, even children, alive. And there's a, you know, it's difficult to listen to, but we, you know, in one sense, David as king was almost commanded to do this. These are people who should not have been allowed to live to start with. Um, but it, you know, it was, it's difficult. So we see him doing this, and uh, he's enriching himself with the spoil, and he's harming Israel's enemies. Uh, and and Akish knows nothing about it, and so it's, it's interesting. So it wonder, well, now, is this something that David should be doing? Because the whole chapter, I'm not sure if David even needs to be down here. But this is what David ends up doing. And it all stems from chapter, from verse 1. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's kind of interesting uh, that uh, whether we should be doing this or not. But it, but it seems to me from verse 1 that we might say David is spiritually bipolar. Right? And I don't like to use the word bipolar. I, mean, I understand it's, it's a thing and people suffer from something. Although I think a lot of it is just spiritual is spiritual. But, you know, it is what it is, right? And so, he's up one moment, serving the Lord and full of faith, and the next moment he's off doing his own thing. And, and notice that the, one, the reason why I, I question all this is because in chapter 27, we don't read anything about God. There's no, God, David's not asking them anything. Remember when God, when David asks the Lord, he gets answers, and, and it, God always blesses it. Here, he hasn't asked God about anything. And so it just seems like we see David here kind of, uh, you know, taking matters into his own hand and, and whether anything good is coming from it or not, who knows. But it's just an interesting chapter. And uh, the Bible, again, doesn't make any commentary to that. So we don't, we, I'll be, I don't want to be too hard on David. Um, but I think the main lesson there is, is certainly verse 1. Because the Bible tells us it's in Solomon uh, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. 
Um, and again, it's a well-known verse, but notice here it doesn't say, um, don't use your own understanding. David certainly is, although the problem is I don't think it's necessarily based on God's revelation. But it doesn't say don't use your understanding. It says don't lean on it. Don't depend upon it. There aren't always instant answers and insights to life's problems. We're going to see this in 1 Corinthians. And so we must learn the art of spiritual wisdom. And God mercifully turns David's actions into victories over his enemies, but not always. David will suffer greatly because of some of his decisions. But we, um, I think there's implication in this verse that a lot of life's a lot of life is us trying to do the best we can. They, you know, from as we learn God's word, figuring out life on our with that. In other words, God doesn't tell us every move to make, right? So trust in the Lord with all your heart. If you if that, and what that means is that I will listen to what the Bible says first and foremost. You don't trust God if you don't listen to what He has to say. And so I won't lean on my understanding, I'll lean on the, what God has revealed to me and I will use my understanding in light of that and, there, and in doing that I am acknowledging God in all everything I do and he will work it out, he will straighten out those paths, it'll, it'll work out we're doing the best we can and, and I don't mean that in a way that you know I really don't know what to do I'm just, you know, no, I think God gives us all the information we need but we use that in a way that serves the Lord. And, and, and it does, it's not about right or wrong. The Lord will bless it. So um, just some interesting, I think, observations anyway from my standpoint. I don't know if you found them interesting. But any questions or comments in before we next week get to uh, Saul and the Witch of India? Yes. Yeah, I don't think that that really amounts to much. Uh, there's no evidence that the Philistines in any way served Israel at that point, and I think it was just uh, something to say to taunt. And uh, th- there was certainly a uneasy relationship that would, Israel sometimes lived within the borders of what would be their land and. That was and traded with them. Remember, in the days of Samuel, that's what they, that's what they get uh, some of the sharpened tools. Right? But it, it was it was constant friction, and, and, and when they, and when Israel started to get a king, that that became then uh, the time where it was a concentrated effort to get rid of the Philistines. It, it took David to do it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love to us this day. We, Pray, Lord, that you would uh, 
bless the word as we listen to it. May the Holy Spirit use it in our lives to conform us to Christ. We pray for our two new mothers. We ask for the blessings upon them and on the babies. They would be healthy and be back with us soon. We just give them grace. Lord, we know that uh, these are times now where sleep becomes a premium and all the things that go along with it. But uh, we just pray that there will be great blessings in these families and in the church. We look forward to when they're back with us and we can enjoy all these things together. Yes, he sings in Jesus' name.